Good morning. Uh, my name is Colton, and uh, I'm one of our pastors here. I have the privilege of getting to work with the youth. And so uh, I know we just prayed, but why don't we just pray quickly again as we get into this. God, thank you for your word, and God, I pray that as we as I share uh, what you've put on my heart today to share, that your word might just uh, flow and speak clearly to us and to our hearts, Lord, that you might make us more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let me first start by uh, reading a quote by a person named Frederick Douglass. He was born a slave in 1818, became a believer at age 13, and he became free, and also a minister and an orator. And here, he writes against the church in the south of the United States in the period before the Civil War. And this is what he says. I hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of the land. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other, and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious master. The clanking of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison And the pious psalm and solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and they mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit and the pulpit, in return, covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Here we have religion and robbery, the allies of each other. Devils dressed in angels' robes, and hell presenting the semblance of paradise. Cutting words. And this example really brings up this morning's question. Many people object to Christianity by bringing up these two points. Hasn't the church done so much injustice? Aren't Christians hypocrites? Now, we might think this is old news, but still, you might find people, people who have been hurt or whose families have been hurt in some way in the past, either from the church or from its affiliation, and they feel this way about the church today. And if that's you here today, uh, and you struggle with the church's past, I hope that today I can uh, helpfully address this question for you. Pastor Eric Mason, a pastor in Philadelphia, he recalls a time when he didn't follow Jesus, and what kept him, a black nationalist at the time, from following him. This is what he says. The biggest beef was with the white people in the church. And when we look at the synthesis of Christian history, they got to the point where they begin to talk about the church. It seemed like, for me, he says, everywhere Christianity touched, something happened that was bad. That didn't line up with the reality of the Gospels of Jesus or the passion of Paul. There was this imperialistic 
philosophy of life that wanted to take over anywhere, any people, at any, in any place, at any cost. And he says, this was a struggle for me to work through. The injustices of the Crusades, the Constantinian Christianity, the slave trade, all of these things played a role. It seemed like the church was involved with all that injustice. And so what do we do with these things? What do we do with the fact that in Germany there was a group that stood solidly behind Hitler's rise to power and basically tossed two millennia of Christian orthodoxy overboard in favor of a strong, unified Reich church and a Christianity that was strong and masculine that would stand up to and defeat the godless and degenerate forces of Bolshevism, Russian communism. These people called themselves Deutsche Christian. German Christians, and referred to their brand of Christianity as positive Christianity. And they became aggressive, attacking those who didn't agree with them, causing division and confusion in the church. What about mainstream Protestant Christian leaders considering adopting the Arian paragraph? What about the separate but equal call of Christianity in the American South during the Jim Crow laws to keep races separate even after slavery was abolished? What about the Crusades, where the response to some earlier Muslim aggression was met with harsh Crusades that in 1204 saw Crusaders from the West marching under the banner of the cross, rape and pillage Constantinople, doing to their fellow Christians, Greek Orthodox Christians, what no Muslim army had done before. What do we make of the calls of Bernard of Clairvaux? encouraging the knights of Europe to take up the sword under the banner of the cross, saying, Our King Jesus is accused of treachery. It is said of him by the Muslims that he is not God, but that he falsely pretended to be something he was not. Any man among you who is his vassal ought to rise up to defend his Lord from the infamous accusation of treachery. He should go to the sure fight where to win will be glorious and where to die will be gain. Is that what Christians are really called to fight for? We have many examples of this kind of attaching. The church attaching itself to some kind of political movement with grave injustices. So what do we make of these things? Were any of the people who were a part of this, were they real Christians? You know, we can't be dismissive in this discussion. We can't simply ignore the wrongs that have been done under the banner of the cross, even though it might make us uncomfortable to hear. But this is what many of the unbelieving world simply find unbelievable about Christianity, to quote DC Talk. And I don't want to dismiss that there was something wrong. You know, sure, there was aggression that some of the Crusades responded to, but the response left deep hurt and animosity among Muslim people because of the imperialism and ruthlessness that accompanied these so-called Christian Crusades. These weren't about the gospel. They were about glory and political aspirations. Slave owners, same thing. If they had read the Bible as a whole, they would have understood that there can be no slaves, no enslavement. And in fact, the practice of forced slavery that happened in the U.S. and in Britain and elsewhere is completely opposed. Exodus 21, verse 16, it says, anyone who steals a person and possesses them shall be put to death. That's pretty clear condemnation. When people who partook in these kinds of things do this, Their concern isn't about the kingdom of God, but about building their own kingdom. And largely, that's where a lot of the injustice done by the church follows. Seeking a kingdom, but not the kingdom of God, 
rather a personal or political kingdom. I watched the movie Indian Horse, a story by Richard Wagamese the other day. If you've ever seen it, you can see and feel the deep, deep hurts and wounds indigenous people in Canada received at the hands of those who claim the cross of Christ, yet through government and church-sanctioned residential schools harshly treated indigenous people, taking from them their culture to replace it with their own European culture. See, it wasn't about the gospel or the good news of Jesus, but imperialism, superiority, assimilation. And that's a major stain in our country's history. Uh, One that merits not only apologies, but active restoration. And so we need to acknowledge that there has been violence done in the name of Christ. The terrible reality that we need to address. That the idea of superiority, though not a Christian way of thinking, when it's been coupled, coupled with Christian beliefs, has had terrible outcomes. And for many has left a really bad impression of the church. Now, What we'll find is actually that many religions and sets of ideas have done this. This isn't something unique to the church. The atheism that Hitler espoused, though he twisted religion to suit his needs, and many other religions take ideas, and when they combine them with a sense of superiority, mistreat other people who don't fit in. It's not just religious ones. The communist regimes of the 20th century, atheistic by design, did horrible injustice and violence in the name of the state. The Khmer Rouge killed 2 million million of their own people. Stalin, over 20 million through labor camps and mass killings. And Mao Zedong in his great leap forward, killing around 45 million. So we need to see that this isn't just a religious problem. This is a people problem. You know, sometimes truth claims have been used in the past as power plays, as Dave spoke about last week. And it needs to be dealt with and addressed, but how? There's something else that is ultimately plaguing humanity, and it goes deeper than just beliefs, but gets right to the core of our human nature. The problem of justice or injustice is in the heart. The problem is in our heart. You know, back in the Old Testament, the prophets, Amos, Micah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, They were calling God's chosen people, the Israelites, to justice. Uh, To not just say that they followed something, in particular Israel's God, but to actually be a follower. Isaiah 1 verse 17 says, Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Seek justice, won't you? That was the call of the prophets again and again. See, God doesn't want lip service Christianity or people that just attend church and say they're part of it. He wants more than just the sacrifices that Bernard of Clairvaux was calling the church to in the Crusades. He wants real justice and real love to flow from people who are really loved by God. He wants their heart. Micah 6, verses 6 to 8 reads this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Like, is this the sacrifice he wants? He says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He doesn't need your money 
or power. He doesn't need your swords to defend him. He wants your heart. And that's what the Old Testament points to again and again. Proverbs 21, verse 3, it says, to do justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifice. You know, the motions, which are symbolic of the heart posture, the sacrifices, are not as important as the heart posture itself. In Jeremiah 5, verse 24 to 28, we have God telling the people of Israel that they are entering into exile. So they're being taken from their homeland as a consequence for rebelling against God precisely because of their lack of justice. It says this, They do not say to themselves, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. It says this, Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are the wicked who lie in wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch people. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek, you know, like off the backs of others. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the cause of the poor. And this is not the way of life that God wants for his people. And yet I've mentioned, the examples I've mentioned, like already people are becoming rich off the backs of others. It was a problem for people who claimed to be God's people back then. And it is still today and has been throughout history. People building their own kingdoms, not the kingdom of God. And to quote Pastor Dave, he says, justice is God's idea, his heart for human interactions. So God is working against injustice so are christians hypocrites yes and no the person i cited at the beginning frederick Douglass, he said that he said this about some ministers he said some of these ministers make religion a cold and flinty hearted thing having neither principles of right action nor bowels of compassion they strip the love of god of its beauty and leave the throng of religion a huge horrible repulsive form. It's a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. It's not that, what James 1, 27, he quotes here, pure and undefiled religion, which is from above and which is first pure, then peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You know, Douglas wasn't the first person to call Christians out on their hypocrisy. And so for those of you who can't stand the hypocrisy of the church and you see it and you want to call it out, guess what? Got good news. Jesus beat you to the punch. And here's what he says. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. That's like the very definition of hypocrisy. Woe to you! teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first 
clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. So Jesus calls out the religious leaders of his day. He says they're hypocrites. Outwardly they look good, but inside they're wasting away. The problem is the heart. You know, why do so often uh, many groups of people, when they're treated unjustly, they rise up and begin to also direct their anger to groups of people who have mistreated them and they cause more injustice? You know, many of the injustices I've mentioned, actually, both religious and not, they happen that way. Mao, for example. The problem is the heart of all people. Again, Eric Mason, uh, once a black national, he said, when people enjoy the spoils of power, they forget that the original reason why they started doing stuff in the first place. We have that problem with David. We see that throughout the Bible, and we can see that throughout our history. And he says, Proverbs 29, verse 18, makes this clear. Where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. When the biblical vision of what God wants, his vision for every single area of our lives, is removed, there is nothing restraining people from not going for theirs but not going for God. And and that's what we get. Groups of people who just want to get theirs. In a sense, I'm going to get mine. That's what we get when we remove the Christ-centeredness of Christianity. We get a Christless Christianity. If we don't want a Christless Christianity, what does it mean to live a Christ-centered Christianity? We need a cruciform or a life patterned after the cross after Jesus' sacrificing, self-sacrificing love, a cruciform life rather than a crusade. You know, we're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And who is our neighbor? You know, it's not just the Christian that we agree with. It's not just the people who agree with us and everything that we say. It's also those who disagree with us. They are also our neighbor, made in the image of God. You know, people who are really Christians have to admit that they're sinners. Christians sin. Tim Keller puts it like this. The Bible explains again and again why people's hearts are drawn towards selfishness and pride and so on. He says, the Bible says, this is how you should live if you believe this. But it also says, you can't and you won't. And it provides a solution to that problem in Jesus. So Christianity, unlike other religions, acknowledges that it can't be followed perfectly. No one is perfect. And so in what is hypocrisy then? Keller defines hypocrisy this way, an inconsistent person, a person who says one thing, does another, and knows that they're doing something wrong, but puts up a front. Pastor Dave pointed out to me that in Greek, this is a theatrical word, wearing a mask. The word Hippocrates is the Greek word for an actor. Now, there are definitely people like that in the church who, as there are elsewhere in the world, who are actors, who we do find people who won't admit it when they mess up. But no Christian can claim perfection. So to claim perfection and then fail, yeah, that would be hypocrisy. But to acknowledge you're a sinner is essential to being a Christian. You know, we all have a heart problem that won't fully be solved until the new creation, until evil is finally defeated. So in that sense, the question as to whether Christians are hypocrites or not is yes and no. Yes, our lives are not always going to match up with what we say. But no, we'll admit it. 
if we're Christians, we can't say that we follow God's way perfectly, without fault. We have to admit that we have a problem, and we need God's help. You know, the Pharisee that Jesus was speaking about was trying to obey God, but they were trying to do this in order to feel superior to other people. And so when they do stuff wrong, they won't admit it. And Christian crusaders can sometimes take this superiority. But Jesus criticizes that. We need to have humility and repentance. For a Christian, when we're faced with the costliness of grace, that we needed Jesus to die in our place because we deserve death as a consequence for our wrongdoings, we don't live as crusaders, but cruciformed Christians. Our lives don't take on a superior a superior <laughs> crusader-style living, but humble, cruciformed living, like Jesus, who gave up his life for his enemies. I left out at the beginning of, my, of our sermon the beginning of Frederick Douglass's quote, what he said before that, he said, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, and so on. So, what is the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ? It starts with Jesus. Jesus came to earth and died for us in our rightful place, taking God's wrath and just wrath, wrath towards our wrongdoings, our sin and, and injustice on himself. No one is good enough to earn God's favor. In Jeremiah, when he's prophesying about the problems of Israel, he knew that it wasn't going to be solved without a heart change. So God speaks through Jeremiah and he says this, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is writing his way, making it possible by putting it in our heart. And so all these things, these desires that lead people to do injustice, the want for power, they're never satisfied with enough. The want for money, there's never enough. The want for pleasure, there's never enough. All that. And the gospel isn't saying, hey, I'll write this law in your heart, so follow me and get all this glory and power and stuff now. No. The gospel isn't a plan for your best life now. It's a person. He's the one we're being called to follow who says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Don't chase after your heart's desires. Follow me, and I'll give you lasting desires, okay? And these desires begin to be less about self-righteousness and self-greatness and more about the righteousness of God, and in turn, acting justly, which we're able to do because of Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, writing his law on our hearts. When we follow Jesus, we follow someone who sacrificed his life so that his followers could be made right with God by dying the victim of injustice and calling for the forgiveness of his enemies. What a different kind of living, a self-sacrificial love way of life. How can we be careful then not to turn a blind eye to injustices? Thinking about politics kind of brings this into play. Really, it doesn't make sense to be vigorously partisan as a Christian, to advance partisan divisions. Uh, both sides will have points that 
you don't agree with because at the helm leading them is a sinful person, not the risen, sinless Jesus. Much of the examples we have of the abuse of the church is when it has gone hand in hand with the political party or kingdom. It becomes about advancing that kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. Tim Keller, in an article recently published, says that one of the reasons Christians these days cannot allow the church to be fully identified with any particular party is the problem of what the British ethicist James Mumford calls package deal ethics. Increasingly, political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all of their approved positions. And here's the thing, if you can't criticize a party you favor when a policy goes against the teaching of the Bible, then you might be making that party or their ideals an idol, your ultimate, and not God's kingdom. And we can't be about that. We need to be really careful. We aren't a block of voters. We are a church if you follow Jesus, not a block of voters. Now, although I've given many bad examples of people using the Bible and the cross of Christ as a way of justifying evils, we also have those who got it. You know, they understood scripture, they applied it, and they gave their life to following Jesus and to confronting injustice, who by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them, changing their hearts, lived lives that have not prioritized power over others, but spirit-filled servanthood. And they serve as great and beautiful examples of the change that the gospel truly makes in the human heart. So here are two. First, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and Christian leader. He knew that just going along with the Nazi evil was wrong, that he had to do something about it. And it ended up costing him his life. He, he trained leaders and Christian leaders in a seminary, and he later began to work with a plot to assassinate Hitler. He was actually a pacifist, but he believed it just wasn't right to sit by silently when so much injustice was being done. And when someone ratted out this group, and he was caught and executed, he was a martyr killed because of his faith in God, which led him to action. You know, the confessing church in Germany, there were those called the confessing church who were not going to follow the Nazi party. And they signed this document. And here's a portion of the document that many signed. I'm going to read it. When blood, ethnicity, race, and honor here receive the rank of eternal values, then the evangelical Christian is forced by the first commandment to reject this valuation. When the Aryan human being is glorified, God's word is witness to the sinfulness of all humans. When anti-Semitism, which binds him to hatred of Jews, is opposed upon the Christian framework of the National Socialist worldview, then for him, the Christian commandment to love one's fellow human stands opposed to it. You know, this was a struggle for many of the Confession Church at first. It wasn't something that was easily signed by any of them. But it is possible to be faithful to the word of God and to following the Jesus way of sacrificially loving, but only by receiving a new heart. Otherwise, we'll follow what's popular. You know, the people who signed this memorandum were thereby known as enemies of the state. Before that, we have another believer, William Wilberforce, who for 40 years put forward bill after bill after bill to abolish the slave trade in Britain. Wilberforce was a believer. He followed Jesus tirelessly and opposed evil from 1789 to 1807 when he finally saw the slave trade abolished. And he kept working 
for the emancipation of slaves until 1833, where it finally passed, and he passed away shortly after. That's over 40 years of tireless work to end slavery. Great examples. So how can we keep ourselves from being hypocrites and from engaging in injustices? Number one, learn to read the Bible faithfully. Learn to read each chapter, each verse, each word in its context. Do what's called exegesis. Read it in its context. Discover the meaning that the original authors intended, knowing its historical context, where it is placed in the Bible. Because taken as a whole, the scriptures don't support things like slavery or any kind of injustice that places one group superior to another group of people. So don't allow yourself to be duped by what someone popular might say. Know God's character. Know God's word. You know, many of the problems we have found is we found is that people read into the Bible what they wanted it to say, and that's called eisegesis, reading into the Bible a meaning that wasn't intended by the original author. They take what's called proof texts, verses that we just pluck up from the Bible out of context to help say what they want to say. You know, you can do that, and you can basically make the Bible have a baseball game if you want, but it's not faithful reading of the Bible. Know the story of the Bible, how it's one unified story, finding its fulfillment in Jesus. And number two, own it. If you're a Christian, you mess up. Everyone is a sinner. And what keeps you from being a hypocrite is to admit, I messed up. I'm a sinner. I messed up. I do things I know I shouldn't have done. I sin in my anger sometimes. I think impure thoughts sometimes. I am a sinner. Own it. So what does that mean? Repentance. In confession, repentance comes from the Hebrew word shuv, which basically means to do a 180 turn. From going down this path, I'm going to shuv, I'm going to go down this path. Turn, go the opposite way of where your sins were leading you. Turn from the sin and hypocritical way of living and start following the path that Jesus has called you to. So often this means by making uh, restitution, making things right with the people you've wronged. And two, confession. Confess your sins to God and to those you've sinned against. Confess it. Admit it. I messed up when I said that, when I did that. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Confess it and ask for forgiveness. Own your mistakes. You know, as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to hurt people's feelings. I'm going to go about things the wrong way, intentionally sometimes and unintentionally. We will make mistakes, but we need to confess it and own it. You know, it's really hard if you don't have the cross that it, your, your, your mistake has been paid for, if you don't have that in view, it's really hard to do that. But when you have that in view, when you remind yourself, Jesus paid for my sin, then you can confess, make things right, because you know the grace you've received. Listen to those who are hurting. Seek to help in their hurt, not to dismiss them but be caring passionate followers of Jesus by showing compassion you know we're called to be like Christ more and more transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit allowing Jesus to have first place in our lives allowing him to have room to write his way on our hearts you know ultimately our quest for justice the Bible says is found only with Jesus Christ at the helm of history Isaiah reads this here is my servant whom I uphold my chosen one, 
in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Jesus is God's conduit for true justice. There is no true bringing of justice without Jesus. And so we wait for the day when Jesus will finally and truly bring this all to fruition. And while we wait, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live according to the Jesus way of loving our neighbor and seeking justice, loving mercy as we walk humbly with God, who is the author and builder of our lives, who is writing his law in our hearts. And we can be a part of building the kingdom of God and not our own. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And thank you that we get Jesus. You gave your life so that we can have a relationship with you that goes far beyond anything else we could possibly want or imagine, that we could have the bread of life that lasts. And God, we pray that we would be people who do justice, that don't, in our want for power or greed, act unjustly towards others, but that we embody the love that you've shown us. We pray this in your name. Amen.